Lord, may we hear from you together this evening and may we respond in the power of your spirit. Amen. I don't think I ever consciously set out to become unfit. You don't, do you? Okay. Um, a few years ago, on the other hand, I did have an awkward conversation with a doctor where the doctor basically said to me, the drug we put you on can affect your liver. I've just done a blood test. We haven't had you on it for long enough. It's basically the belly. And you, you, you're putting your liver under pressure without realising it. Do something about it. So I did. I was discussing earlier the fact that my work's crept back up again. I'm going to have to watch it. And that's one of the things about discipline. It doesn't stop once it starts. But Paul writes in this chapter we just read that, that physical training is of some use. And if you think about it, the government and the teachers, I'm one of them, nutritionists, all kinds of it, will tell you that is true. Physical discipline is of some use. If you allow yourself, if you let yourself go, you end up unfit, possibly even unfit to work, but certainly you find that things that you used to be able to do with ease, you can't do as well anymore, and illness and other things can be caused by it. So there is some benefit in getting back on my bike, doing a bit of exercise, maybe tracking what I eat, maybe eating an apple rather than those three digestives, especially the ones with chocolate on whatever it is. There is some benefit in actually applying basic discipline and training. Now there's another level to that, and I don't know if any of you saw any of the sport the other weekend, but there was like so many world things going on, it was unbelievable. I think the, the women's world golf was in Milton Keynes, the Open was over in Northern Ireland, there was a bit of cricket going on somewhere, which we squeaked through on, I didn't even know you had golden goals or the equivalent in runs or whatever it was for uh, cricket, but there you go. And there was also the netball. And my wife had the netball on, on iPlayer or whatever it was, and we listened to Claire Balding explaining why it was such a brilliant thing that Liverpool had put on this huge festival of sport. And there was all this discussion about the various people who had taken part, and the New Zealanders, I think, were the winners in the end, just ahead of the Australians. Well, it's always good when somebody beats the Australians at anything. But what was interesting to me was the bold claims that they were making about how these sports would inspire people to have better lives and they should all get involved. And, and they were really you know, pushing the message that sport is really such an important thing. And that is not new. Because sport, elite sport, was linked to religion back when Paul was writing this. And there are all kinds of things built around that sort of idea. And these things, they, that, there's nothing new under the sun, as, as the writer to the Ecclesiastes, I think, said. It, it's coming back. Sport is becoming the new sort of elite thing that we almost worship these sports people. We must think they're worth a lot if you look at how much we pay some of them. But actually, the lessons that you learn from sport kept in perspective 
do help you to understand the idea of discipline in the Christian life. And that's why Paul brings it in. And there was one lady, she was one of the um, fossils, which meant apparently she was around about the age of 30 and still playing netball. Fossil. <laughs> I don't know what that makes me. Um, Neolithic, I think, or something. Um, but then I don't play netball. But this fossil was part of the world-winning team, and yet a few years before, in a, I think in the Commonwealth Games when England won it, she had not been on the team. And the reason she'd not been on the team was she wasn't quite fit enough. And they said, well, we're so pleased for her because she recommitted. She put in the extra hours. She did the extra work. She controlled the diet. And there she was, back, match fit, and helping New Zealand to beat Australia by one point. But she was there. And it was the outcome of the discipline that meant that she was fit to serve in that way in her national team. So the picture of discipline is clear. And I think we all understand what it means. Paul just says, well, it's of some value. But he also says that although that is the case, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life. That's living life now and for the life to come. It's really important that you notice it doesn't say, I think some people think this, godliness is all about pie in the sky when you die. It isn't. Godliness has promise for now and also for eternity. Physical fitness helps you now and maybe a little bit later in life to live a little bit longer because you don't get hit by various things that we, we might do later in life quite as soon and so forth. But our lives are still short. There is a complete step change between the two. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at that and we're going to look at the advice to Timothy as a minister. And I'm just going to remind you, and if you weren't here this morning, I'm sure you'll, you'll pick up on it, that... Christian ministers, in the way that they live their lives, are told to be an example. But an example is something that you follow. So anything he says to Paul about the way Paul says to Timothy, not Paul, yeah, doesn't talk to himself. Paul says to Timothy about the way he lives his life, applies. Have a look and see. And the other thing, of course, to remember is that all of these letters were written in such a way that we can read them over the shoulder of Timothy because actually they were open letters. So the reason why the churches had a copy of this letter is not because somebody found it after Timothy died and said, oh, look, here's a letter Paul wrote him. It's because actually he wrote to him and everybody in Ephesus got to hear what Paul told Timothy. So it's important that we, we get that. Now we start with the context. The context is still the same as the rest of the letter. The central mission and foundation of the church comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. The mission of the church is to grow disciples. Jesus said, go and make disciples. And to proclaim the gospel. So that people learn to live godly lives in God's family, his household, his church. 
and people are brought into that as we reach out. And you equip the family to do the jobs that need to be done, which includes telling others about Jesus. So that is what we read about, and we then hear a warning. The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage, require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. That's very similar to a doxology that we used to sing in my grandmother's church. All good gifts around us are sent from heaven above so thank the Lord and thank the Lord for all his love. They used to sing it whenever they brought the collection forward um, just to remind you that all good gifts around us are actually from God. Quite, quite good actually. What are these people... And are they still around now? Well, what these people are, are people who add regulations to the basic gospel of grace and say that these are entry requirements and without these things, you can't be a Christian. They might have been the people who had a Jewish background who wanted to keep Judaism but just sort of slot Christ in, so they wanted to keep all the laws, but they didn't forbid people to marry. So it's beyond that. On this occasion, it's others who are upping the ante and saying, to be really holy, you have to be single. To be really holy, you have to not eat certain things. Now look, if you happen to be a vegan or a vegetarian, that's your choice. It's not a problem. I'm not going to tell you, you must eat meat. But nor should anybody say, oh, that Christians should never eat meat. Because meat is a gift from God. And if, it's, if, we, if we eat with thankfulness, it is fine. Paul deals with the idea of matters of conscience and whether food sacrificed to idols, all that sort of thing in Corinthians. But he makes it clear that we should act with grace towards others. He doesn't say this is an in or out of the church situation. But what people do, and, and I've seen it in education for years, is they take an idea and they say, well, that's not mine so I can't sell it to you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to dress it up, systematize it, put a few things in the mind, and I can make it distinctive, and then it's mine and I can sell it to you. It's a demonic thought in a way that we're all in this world to make as much as we can out of somebody else, so I'm looking out for number one and there's one sucker born every minute. You know, that kind of... But it's a demonic idea because that isn't the purpose of humans at all. We're here to appreciate and glorify God and to appreciate the creation that he made and so forth. It is totally different. We're supposed to look after that creation. Go look at the, the story of Adam and Eve and you'll see what he told him to do. He got him to name all the animals, everything else. But these guys, they're taking ideas from somewhere else. And with seared consciousness, they're trying to sell you an idea. So be it the evangelist, quotes, who tells you that if you send seed money to him, then God will bless you. Or if you pray with a particular handkerchief, because at one point some handkerchief Paul had healed somebody, so therefore they can do the same thing. Or whatever the other gimmick is, that's the extreme end. But there are others who will say to you, well, no, we're not like that. But they will actually make a system. Now look, I teach kids, 
And it turns out that if you have a conversation with somebody, and this is what you know, and this is how well you're doing, and we agree where you're at, what you're good at, what you're not good at, and then we say, well, I tell you what, look, in order to help you get a little bit better, let's do some practice in this, let's do some work on that, I'll, I'll see how you do on that, we'll get back to you, and then we see how you do and we improve. Yeah? They used to call that assessment for learning, okay? So you basically work out where you're at, you decide what to do, you go back and see how you're doing, and then you go around the cycle again. Some people call that coaching. Mr. Federer, you are really, really good, but today I noticed that you were a bit off on the backhand. We need to practice that. Let's go away and sort that out. I'll, I'll work with you and so forth. Adjust your aim. Okay. Roger does his fitness. Roger's still there. He's, I, I don't know who would actually tell Roger Federer anything, but he has got a coach. And interestingly enough, um, one of our tennis players, who didn't have a coach for a while, dropped quite rapidly. And then when Andy Murray hired a coach that he would listen to, came back up again. This is before he's had all his operation and everything. But it does matter. And that's fine. So, and I apologise if anybody knows the organisation I'm going to talk about, but there is a company that has hired itself out to various schools. And they've decided that instead of that sort of coaching cycle, they're going to call it diagnosis therapy testing and by calling it diagnosis therapy and testing registered trademark they can sell you a sheet of paper that tells you to do what you were going to do anyway but only if you paid them and now that's a, a simple example there are whole industries of self-help books and so forth that take one little idea and they add things to it so diets unfortunately are like that as well you know, our diet's different from their diet because of this. You've got to do it our way. Really? Or did you just make that up? And, you know, you mustn't get married. They just made that up. Okay? They might have exaggerated something Paul said somewhere else because he said it may be better not to get married. But he also said it's okay to get married. You know, so taking one thing, not the other. And throughout history, people have tried to sell you an idea. And the moment you get to the point where... And this is a very easy way to look at it. An emphasis that starts to take you away from what we're reading in the verses before about Jesus Christ. <coughs> the basic stuff. He came, he taught what he was coming for, he died on a cross for our sins, he rose, he told us he was sending the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit came. Jesus is in heaven interceding for us. Jesus will return. Anytime you get away from the basics, that all you need to do is to follow him, to live in faith on what he has done, and that's a bit simplified, but nonetheless, it's okay, a little child may know, then actually, if you're being taken away from that, you're being sold one of these false ideas. Okay? So it might sound logical, it might sound okay, but when you step back and check it and stop listening to the way that they've told you to think about it and just look at it from the basic idea, you realise you've been sold a complete pup. Now, I'll tell you how bad it got in education. A few years ago, there was something called brain gym, okay? And the government pushed it. And lots of schools did it. And it seemed to be, based on the idea, that if you start a lesson, 
with kids to wake them up. You do something mental that means they've got to sort of get their brain going. Yeah? <coughs> My teacher used to do that for me. They used to give you ten questions quick, you know, to see if you could answer them, or a little quiz, or whatever. But, you know, the brain gym people, they had a whole series of things about it. But one of the things that they wrote in, and I didn't know this until a child wrote to The Guardian. Yes, a child wrote to The Guardian. And this nine- or ten-year-old said, I'm not sure I can trust my teacher anymore. Because my teacher has told me that according to brain gym, the only way to get hydration is if you drink water and the water has to have touched your tongue. Nothing else, only water. And oranges don't count, you know? And you think, did they really sell that? They sold it. That's how bad it gets. But trust me, people who claim to be giving you some new way or some new idea, or some refinement of the gospel, are trying to sell you a route away from Christ. Don't let them do it. They have consciences that are seared. And whether it's requiring abstinence from food, or trying to make you feel guilty about something that God has given you, they are wrong. Everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Isn't it interesting that actually all good gifts around us are sent from heaven above, but we thank the Lord for them. And as we read the word and as we pray, we, we get things straight. If you put these things before the brothers, he says, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith, not in some false doctrine, and of the good doctrine, the good teaching that you followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. I've just mentioned a few. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise, in the present life and the life to come. Now, wait a minute. I thought my salvation was by grace. I thought I didn't have to do anything. I thought Jesus had done it all, and I just had to... Rem yeah, but there's a problem with that. The problem with that is you are saved so that you can be a people who will, are eager to do good works. Not people who are dragged along like slaves or are doing it because if you don't do it, you're gone. But people who are eager because a son or a child in the household wants to help. Do you remember when your children used to offer to help you wash up at a certain age? After a while, you get... Um, they want to help. They want to be like you. They want to follow. And they want it because of that relationship with you, not because they're your slave, not because they don't get fed if you don't do it. Okay? So the picture is different. John Wesley was once asked about this, and he said, well, it's getting the cart before the horse, isn't it? I don't do these things in order that God will save me. I do these things because God has saved me. And it's that way around. But there is a discipline in following the Lord. And if you are not disciplined, if you don't respond, if you don't do those things, then you are in difficulty. And that is why we read Psalm 119. Because what Psalm 119 says in 
verse 9, how can a young man, or woman I'm sure, keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. We just had this huge warning about don't get suckered into doing the wrong things. Don't get dragged away from the gospel. Well, how do you keep your way pure? By living according to your word. He says, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Teach me, Lord, your statutes. What Timothy has been told is, if you, t if you warn people against what is wrong, and you tell people what I've told you to tell them, which is the mystery of godliness, then you are being a faithful teacher because you're saying, this is the truth, avoid the errors. Now let's have a little look a little bit further down, and we're going to look at this idea of training in godliness. This is the third trustworthy saying in this book. The first one was that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The second one was what we looked at this morning. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And this is the third one. So this is, this is the third big pillar, if you like, of this letter. What he's saying is, we toil and we strive because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. <coughs> Paul <coughs> looks at Timothy and says, you and I serve the gospel. You and I know that we must tell people about the saviour. We must make sure they know the truth. We must make them understand that actually to obey God's commands is to follow him. And that the fruit of that is shown in the scriptures. But it isn't about a legalistic following of law anymore. It's about following in the way of God. But did you notice in Psalm 119, it was, I want to follow you with all my heart. By living according to your word. The Old Testament wasn't cancelled by Jesus. The Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. The New Testament is given to us to help us to see how to interpret the Old Testament and to show us Christ and to show us what is still to come so that we know how to live our lives in the church now. So let's have a look. Godliness now, what would it mean? Well, if you're godly now, if you're fit now, when somebody asks you to explain why you believe in Jesus or why you don't do certain things or why you do certain other things, you will have an answer because you will have learned that answer by studying the word. When you come to a point where you want to make a decision, you won't be guessing. You won't be saying, Lord, I really want to know and I've got no idea. That does sometimes happen and it's okay to pray like that if, if you are in that situation. But most of the time you will find that over time you learn to discern right from wrong. Why? Because you keep evaluating what you do against the word of God. And how do you know? Just through reading personally and picking out verses? No. Through listening to teaching and preaching, through spending time reading whole books of the Bible and getting the big picture, through making sure that you 
meet together and encourage one another so that if you're getting a bit of a weird idea, somebody says, Martin, that's not good. Okay? The, the greatest, well, I wouldn't say the greatest preacher in the world, but some of the greatest preachers in the world have at various times had to eat their words. John Wesley once predicted the timing of the end of the world and repented of that. Um, MacArthur said something about Christ becoming God's son in Hebrews in one of his books, which got published around the world. And because of it, um, when he came to a conference over here, it was actually picketed by Ian Paisley, here of the DUP. And he recognised his mistake and withdrew because he said, I made a mistake. We don't sit there on our own and say, I'm going to be able to tell you everything about the word. We help each other with that. But more importantly than that, we as the church have the spirit and he helps us to see what is right and discern. But that training involves understanding the word, understanding the gospel. In the next book of Timothy, he says all scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking and instructing the man of God. But he also says that the word of God makes you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus. So read the whole thing and you realise it brings you right back to faith. So although it, it instructs you on how you go, it also instructs you that how you go is to have faith in and follow Jesus. Godliness gives you confidence now. It gives you a life worth living now. People who live in a Christian way in the end are happier than people who don't. There's lots of statistics to prove that, some of which I think are statistically valid. But you're also not doing harm to others because if you're not the Lord, you are rebelling against him now. So there are benefits now not least of all being in a church family. A lot of people hang around churches because they like the fact that churches are full of such nice people. Why are these people also nice to me? Because they know the Lord and they know his grace. But it's more than that. It's the hope to come. It's the saviour who will return. He'll either meet you after you've died and go to sleep in him or he'll meet you in the air when he returns. Those are the, the two options. I don't know which it'll be. I guess the odds are the younger you are, the more likely it is to be the second one, but I don't know. If you command and teach these things, Paul says, then you will be a good <coughs> teacher. But then he says, command and teach these things and let no one despise you for your youth. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? We talked this morning about people being too young. So maybe Paul knows that he said that and has written this in particularly, or maybe it is because not only is Timothy acting pastor, he's sort of one up on that. He's appointing the elders and so forth in the Ephesian church. But what's the way he deals with that? Do you front it out? Do you say, look, I've got a degree in theology, hard luck? No. What you do is you set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. What's an example there to have happen to it? What do we do with examples? 
good examples? We follow them. So let's look at the example that he sets. And that's how you get respect. It's that consistency of life. There are four words. First one. Speech. How you speak. Paul tells Timothy to gently instruct. But I don't think he just means that. I think he means don't get into conversations about daft things that are not important. Don't spend your time winding people up. Don't speak sharply. The way that you speak, the words you use, the topics of your conversation should set the example. Conduct. The way that you behave. What you do. How you do certain things. Whether you are completely honest. I don't know if you've ever gone back because the change is wrong but was in your favour and looked at the shock on their faces. What? I'd have just walked away. You know, well no, but I serve the Lord and I would be dishonouring him to do that. You know, now I was taught from a very early age to hand things in I found, all those sorts of things. But that conduct which was taught to me by my parents is incredibly important and is quite counterintuitive because nowadays it's like, well, for Possession's nine-tenths of the law, thank you very much. You know. By the way, possession is nine-tenths of the law. If you're caught with it, nine-tenths of the time, you're banged to rights. So that's, not what, that's what it means. It doesn't mean I can have it. It means something different. It means I've got incriminating evidence. But your conduct, the way that you turn up, do you turn up on time, do you do your best, those sorts of things, they matter. And the way in which... Timothy spends his time, the way in which he works, all of those things will be watched by his hearers. But is the pastor or the elder the only person in a Christian congregation who people watch? Do you want to disappoint a non-believer by letting the Lord down by your conduct? It's an interesting way to put it, but a friend of mine pointed out that at work, when he blew things, which he so rarely did, to be honest, um, it looked like some people were actually disappointed. And they were, because although they don't follow Jesus, they're looking at you and thinking, maybe there is another way, and their hope is that this is, this is for real. So, how you do that? In love. Well, look, you can be a very honest, upright hard-working, completely cold and heartless-sounding person. But that isn't right either. Love. We love one another as the Lord has loved us. The love that we show, the relationships we build, the offers of help we give, the hospitality, the prayer for people, the, the simple card, the, 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 the loads of ways in which we practically show love. Again, set an example, Timothy, that your people will follow. In faith. Timothy's faith. Holding to his faith. His trust in the Lord. His purity in the Lord. Those aspects of his conduct are all important. And if you set an example in them, 
In other words, you live the Christian life. How would you turn out? How would your marriage turn out? How would your reputation turn out? Wouldn't you end up looking like the people that were listed in chapter 3? With the exception of whether you could teach with authority and so forth. If you're, if you're setting those things up. Now, Timothy is at least an elder. And what Paul is saying is, live the life the way you should. But this is what he says. Set the example, and until I come, make the main thing the main thing. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Well, teaching is telling people what things mean, isn't it, and stuff like that. What's exhortation? It's asking them to do something. Okay? Exhortation, asking Christians to live in a certain way, persuading them you should live a holy life, that you should serve the Lord, that you should look for ways to witness for the Lord. All of those exhortations that Paul gives at various times, especially the ones that he gives to pray, they are part of his ministry. He doesn't just tell you, here's like a textbook example of what the Bible says. He exhorts you, encourages you, demands that you do something about it. And he says, don't neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Well, nobody laid their hands on me, so I guess that doesn't count for me. But actually, we know that Timothy is setting an example and doing things that pastors would do. We do set aside people who are gifted by God to lead churches because we recognize that they have to rely on God. So we recognize what God has given us and we test their call and so forth. But why is he telling Paul, why is Paul telling Timothy to do those things? Because those are the things he's expecting should be happening in a church that's going to grow. So every church should have people who are preaching, teaching, exhorting. And then you get the P's. And I'm going to finish with these. Perfection is overrated. Now, almost any sports person will tell you this. Even the ones who score perfect tens, all that happens is they change the scale next time and make it harder to get ten. Perfection is overrated. Why? Because there is only one perfect man, and that's the Lord Jesus. So you're not perfect, I'm not perfect. Timothy was not told to be perfect. Read through, check it out. Maybe you've got a different translation. Maybe there's the word in it, but I don't see it. I do see three Ps. I see practice, which means doing, to be honest. Persisting. And progress. Okay? What is Paul saying? Paul is saying this. Timothy... Train yourself in godliness. What does training mean? It means there is an effort involved, there is a goal involved, and there is progress towards that goal. That's what it means. As Timothy looks at his life and looks at his teaching carefully and concentrates 
on teaching the word whilst living it out, what do his hearers see? They see a young man who takes God seriously, who has faith in him, who is rock solid in understanding that he is only able to minister because he is in Christ, but who is striving to treat people right, to show the love of God, to spend time with people, to act fairly, to gently instruct, to pray for people, to keep people away from what is wrong. He is completely honest. And because of that, because of the progress they see, they will take him seriously. What does it say? Practice these things. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. The, 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 the one I remember, I said, watch your life and doctrine carefully. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. But that word that's in there is persist. Training like this requires a goal, but our goal is to follow Christ. Our goal is to build each other up in Christ. His goal was to be a minister that helped the whole church be built and to, to do the things that had to be done to make sure that Christ and his gospel is at the centre of our lives. But the training in godliness, focused on the word, making sure you live out your life according to the word, making sure that what you teach and what you do are the same thing, is the way in which the world is changed by Christian teaching. People locked up in Russian jails in the 1970s found that the guards turned to Christ when they realised these guys weren't letting go. People who persecuted Christians in China who then responded by turning the other cheek and helping them when they should have been knocking them when they were down. Changed the minds of those people and they said they've got something different because they forgave us. People around me living their lives consistently over time are the people that I've really been wanting to listen to and learn what they know. And time and time again, it turns out that those people are humble people who know that they're sinners saved by grace and know that if they want with all their heart to follow Jesus, they have to watch their life carefully. Every one of us has to watch our lives carefully. <coughs> and thank God that we have the word and the spirit to help us in that. And thank God too that he appoints elders, pastors, teachers to help us. I do pray that this church, yes, will get another pastor at some point and will be able to be strengthened and <coughs> grow. But in the meantime, all of the things that he is giving you an example to do you can still follow and you can still see the blessing of the Lord because he knows and he knows exactly what he wants to do amongst you. Paul says, perseverance and progress.
I'm not asking for perfection. Paul doesn't ask for perfection. But can you persevere in your faith? Can you make progress in maybe making those changes that you need to make so that you take away the barriers to your walk with God? Can you increase the way in which you help others? Perhaps there's one thing you could do for somebody. It doesn't have to be a lot, but if everybody did one thing, just think about how that multiplies. But are you willing to let the Lord who you say is your Lord, if you've said, I believe in my heart he's been raised from the dead, and I proclaim is my Lord, are you going to say, well, you're my Lord, but I don't want to do what you say? How does a young man keep his way pure? Same as an old man. By living according to your word. And by following the one who reveals the word. And that is Jesus. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, we thank you for the fact that Jesus is not a mystery to us anymore because he has been revealed at the right time. We thank you that you saw fit to get Paul to write this letter to Timothy so we could hear the advice that he gave this minister. We thank you for the priority there is for the church to be centred on Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that as we have heard your word today, you would not allow us just to think, well, that was quite interesting, but actually, Lord, that you would challenge each of us to look again at how we're living our lives and to be willing to let you guide us back into your way so that we can be more fruitful and more able to tell others of Jesus. Bless our meeting together, Lord, and glorify your name as we sing this last song together. And help us, Lord, to continue to remember you during this week as we minister to one another and as we go out into the world and meet so many others. Help us, Lord, to show them Jesus. Amen. Mm -hmm. <coughs>